Hello, my name's Sam Taylor. I'm Tim McCourt. And you're listening to episode one of season two of The Peg Bar and Grill. It's a podcast where we get smashed one night a week and it's basically just an excuse for us to talk to people who we really respect in animation and illustration and various connected industries. Yeah, this first episode is with a massive, massive inspiration from myself and Sam and I'm sure many of you out there. Uh, his name's Robert Valley. He is one of the most incredible draftsmen, animators. He's worked on like, gorillas and, you know, all the cool stuff that Passion was doing through the 2000s. He's a filmmaker as well and a director and he's just produced a 35-minute short film which is available on demand on Vimeo. I highly, highly recommend it. It's an incredible piece of work. Yeah, I think it's £3.99 to rent and £6.99 to buy. Uh, so show Robert Valley a bit of love and uh, check out his film. If you want to get in touch with us, if you've got any opinions about the show, we're on Twitter, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Facebook, pretty much everything. Uh, you can find everything we're talking about via our show notes that uh, we have every episode. Yeah, this season as well, we've got a sponsor. It's ReadyMag. ReadyMag is a web service that allows you to create pitches and web publications and mini websites. And it's something that we use for all our pitching, basically, internally at the line. Uh, we've got a link. It's readym.ag slash the line. So that's ReadyMag slash the line uh, with a dot between the M and the A. And if you sign up to ReadyMag off the back of that link, it will give us a bit of cash and allow us to carry on funding the podcast. Yeah. Thanks very much um, for listening and uh, enjoy the show. Yeah. Oh, we have a theme tune which is about to start. Okay, yeah. um, just quickly, is there anything that you wouldn't want to talk, like, us to ask questions about? No. Okay, all right. No. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These days I'm just letting it all, sort of let, let it off, all the chips land where they will. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it is what it is, right? Yeah. And um, we don't really, like, censor anything. Like, I think we kind no. of, like, in, maybe when we started out, well, I, I at least was a little, yeah. like, you know, hesitant, yeah. but you just kind of get into, like, yeah. At this point, I don't care yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. There's one yeah. thing, man. You just can't put your thingy on the table. You just got to stick it on the floor, the bottom of the beer, just because it makes a noise. I mean, oh. you, you can hear it. Okay, okay. Do you want to? Are you right for a beer? Got I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. 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 You um, can really hear the beer going on the table, eh? Yeah, yeah, in the first season we did, yeah. we didn't know anything Clonk. about sound. What is that sound? Pretty bad. And then also the... <laughs> well, we still got that. No, <laughs> well, that's kind of right. cool, yeah, actually. Yeah. You hear the... <laughs> yeah, just hearing how much, how actually smashed we were getting at yeah. the period of an episode. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a cool idea doing podcasts, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a good excuse to get in rooms with like people we... We yeah. admire like you. Like, it'd be weird if I just called you up and was like, hey, man, like, I like yeah. your stuff. Do you want to go for a beer? Well, you know what? I totally instigated this. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I kind of cold called you guys. This is an exception. Though. Yeah. Man. <laughs> that, when Dion was like, oh, Robert Valley just got in touch, uh, said he wants to come and check the studio out, I was like, that was a good day, man. Because, like, I'm, I'm going to just 
get out there. I'm I was like, oh, my name's Robert Valley. Uh, I'd like to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, but like, I'm, I'm, all of us are like such massive fans of you. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I've been riding that gorilla's wave for a while. You nah, know. man. <laughs> nah, not at all. I think, uh, I think most of your, for me anyway, the, the, the stuff I get most excited about of your work is your work. Ah. And when I can see your, um, yeah. your touch on things. Yeah, well, you know, I make a big distinction between the work I do for money and the work I do for myself. And uh, the work I've done for myself in terms of the self-publishing. Yeah. And the first independent film I did, which was that massive swerve short. Yeah, yeah. And then this last film I did, which was this uh, pear cider and cigarettes. Oh, yeah. Which is a 35-minute film. Uh, I also would say that that's... Uh, it's independent, but I I, I, I kind of teamed up with passion towards the end. Yeah. Uh, but specifically, uh, I wanted to reach out to Cara Speller because Cara was Jamie Hewlett's producer uh, on Gorillaz uh, okay. for the last eight years. Right, okay. And she ended up over at Passion recently. Right. And so when I came back to Passion and I saw her there, uh, I gave her a couple of my Paris Cider books. Mm. And I was really interested in working with her because I was hoping some of that gorilla's mojo would rub off on me. Yeah. <laughs> That's really what I wanted. So and she was working, was it zombie flesh eaters? No. Right, okay. That's correct, yeah. Oh, right. So, um, um, and from what I understand, they've, Passion have sort of produced it from a point of view of getting music rights for it. Is that right? In terms of um, the production, mm. I've taken care of the of the production, yeah. like locking the picture, mm. the, the edit, the compositing, pretty much everything mm-hmm. uh, on my own dime. I yeah. paid, you know, I managed to finance that all myself. That's incredible, man! It's like a thirty-five yeah. minute film. How long did it take? Uh, just over two years. Okay. I think that is an incredible speed to do something that long. Well, you know, we can talk about methodology later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it's just you working on it. Yeah, well, I didn't, have a, uh, a, I didn't have a budget. Right. So I'm not really in the position to offer people, you know, come and work on my project for free type thing. You know, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Yeah. So if I had a budget, for sure I'd get, like, some people in. But it's just the way this job went. And, but I knew at a certain point that I was going to be drifting into an area which wasn't my expertise, which was everything after locking picture. Mm. So uh, the music licensing and then other things that I wasn't even aware of, like visual uh, clearances. Like I had all sorts of crazy shit in my film, like like episodes of Seinfeld, (laughs) episodes of Friends. I had Western Union... Just stuff that was part of the story. Like logos and things like that. Logos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had like a fucking, uh, a t-shirt, a rock t-shirt sequence. I I had like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, uh, the Rolling Stones. Mm. And I just put it in there because it was cool, right? Yeah, yeah. And then Cara uh, said, well, no, we need, if we're going to distribute this film in earnest, we need to get all this stuff cleared. Yeah. And that was a huge undertaking. Right. 
And so we had lawyers on it. Did you ever think at any point, fuck it, I'm just going to take Seinfeld and Friends and stuff out of the film? No. No, we, we wanted important. it. And Cara wanted it in there. Yeah. Because in the context of the film, and this is kind of what I liked about working with Cara, was she kind of um, looked at the, the, the film in terms of the integrity of telling the story and wanted to like push it forward mm-hmm. without making any compromises. Right. And she was kind of in my corner mm. and pushing for all the things that I wanted. Mm. In some cases, I was more willing to make compromises than she was. But she was <laughs> really? like, no, really? we're going to go for it. That's what that's you want. Yeah. Well, exactly. So that's why it turned out to be a really good arrangement. Yeah. And so, you know, we finally did get clearance from everything except for Rolling Stones. Oh, really? really so we got Iron Maiden clearance, Black, no, not Black Sabbath. Not for the T-shirt, but, you know, it's just, there's so many, uh, like, little tentacles that went off in different directions. Yeah. So that's been going on for months. Is that an expensive process as well? Uh, or is it just time? It's time and money. Mm. That Kickstarter that we did basically went to pay for all the music licensing and all the visual clearances and the post-production that we just finished. And that came to about... 80,000 US dollars for a 35 minute film which is not bad no what, what was the goal on your uh, Kickstarter it was 45 and you got 60 65 right. and then we got uh, some private financing okay. on top of that how'd you go about getting private financing uh, s- somebody reached out and kind of thought that the content uh, and the target group like that kind of adult-oriented animation mm. was kind of suited to, to what they were doing. And so they wanted to make an arrangement that would, you know, they could kind of um, incorporate what we were doing in the launching of their channel, basically. So that that's going to involve some distribution down the line. But... Uh, like can you it, say what channel that is? Eh? Can you say what channel that is? I don't think I'm at liberty to say right now. Right, okay, yeah. But yeah. we will soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But effectively what that did was that, that added another uh, $17,000 onto the sixty-five that we had raised on Kickstarter for a total of, you know, what is that, like 82? Mm. Minus the 7% that Kickstarter and MasterCard takes off. Right, okay. So that puts us right in that pocket of being able to finish that film Right. Give or take a couple thousand pounds. Right. So we're right in there. Okay. Yeah. So at what part in the process did you decide to do the Kickstarter? Is it like... It, it was always part of the plan. Right. But I always wanted to wait until the job was... The animation was done. Mm-hmm. Because um, I just thought it would be strategically uh, a better idea to launch the Kickstarter as part of this kind of um, uh, part of this uh, like a promoting the film right very near towards the release of the film mm. because um, for the time that you're doing the campaign the Kickstarter uh, like website the whole thing acts as a social media in itself mm. and it puts your project on the map people are kind of you know getting on board 
they're posting and they're, they're kind of like getting excited about your production yeah. or about your project. And, um, you know, it was kind of like the thinking that if, if, if the, the film was going to be released within like uh, a few weeks or a couple of months of the end of the campaign, then that would sort of keep that momentum going. Yeah. As opposed to waiting, like doing it at the very beginning. Yeah. Like, hey, I've got an idea for a film. Yeah. And uh, this is the script, and these are the storyboards. Yeah. And it's not going to be done for another two years. Yeah, yeah. Then it's going to really cool off. People will kind of like kind of forget about it, mm. and they'll start to email you, and they'll say, "Hey, where's our stuff?" Yeah, yeah. And in this particular case, you know, I, I thought that being able to deliver on the finished prod product, mm. which is the film, and also all all the other, you know, uh, merchandise that goes with it. Yeah. Uh, within like a couple of months would make it more um, appealing to people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the keeping that momentum going as well. Yeah. And you know what? That plan worked out perfectly. Yeah. It I really think, I did. Think it's exactly the right way to do it. Like, yeah. Because if you're putting up an idea there at the beginning, there's so much that could go wrong. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much risk involved. Yeah. In something like that. You, yeah. I mean, you could... Uh, there's definitely been people who have not completed their films and yeah. they've got a lot of hate of, because of it. And, and tons of products as well. Like yeah, things yeah. where, you know, people have... Because what, what does it take to do a Kickstarter? You just have to put up a Kickstarter. You don't actually have to have the means to be able to create it. It's Everybody a lot of work running you. the campaign. That was one thing I wanted to ask about yeah. as well. Was, was that something you took on yourself or did you have a lot of help? No, it was uh, Cara and myself. Right. Yeah, but... Uh, I'm just going to go back, and then I'll come back to that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. Yeah. Is, um, I thought, and by no means do I, I think, you know, everybody, you know, I, I don't sort of pass this kind of uh, criteria mm-hmm. on everybody, because everybody's different, right? Mm. But for me, I kind of wanted to show up with, with a project that was closer to completion, Right. Because it showed that I had uh, committed all this time and I was willing to put all, this, all these resources mm. in terms of time and money into the project. Yeah. And, you know, just to, just to not totally put everything on, on the people that were going to put the money into it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I wanted to put something into it. You're sort of buying into as a... Uh, someone who's back in the Kickstarter project, you're sort of buying into something that you know is almost like 100% you're going to get that thing. Yeah. You're going to see a finished film. Right. Uh, but it's also like, you know, if I'm going to put something into it, like what have you put into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to show up with a, basically a fully formed kind of thing that I could put on the table mm. and say, you know what? All I need is, you know, some some financing to finish this mm. thing. Yeah. And look how exciting this could be. Yeah. yeah. You know, we can get Black Sabbath, we can get uh, Pink Floyd, with the money that you can, you mm. know, put into this. Mm. All of a sudden, you know, we're starting to get, you know, all the music licensing that we wanted, and so it's starting to get really exciting. So those are existing tracks that have already been, um, that that already exist. You, they're, they're not yeah. recording new stuff. No, no, no. But there was new stuff recorded there was, for this yeah. film as well, Yeah, yeah. Right? There's a lot of new stuff recorded. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it's so funny looking at the credits that we put together today because <laughs> there's, like, one animator, a couple of compositors, <laughs> and then there's, like, this much music credits. It's ridiculous. 
So who, who, who's, who's performing in it? Like, and how closely were you working with those guys? Jesus. It's, it's a 30-minute film, and there's 23 tracks in it. Wow. So there's Air, the Dandy Warhols, Morphine, um, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, uh, Annie Tech. Uh, did a bunch of original music. Uh, I met Robert Trujillo in Annecy a couple of years ago. He's the bass player in Metallica. And he was totally up for, like, he seems like he, he wants to bridge this gap between music and animation. Really? And he was totally digging, like, the Black Sabbath kind of tip that I was on when I showed him, like, the early stages of the film. And, um, and he just finished, like, uh, working on a film himself called Jacko. It's about Jacko Pistorius, the bass player. So he's fully into the whole... You know, everything that I've been doing, he's about two or three steps in front of me right. in terms of uh, completing the film project. Because right. he did a crowdfunder, you know, he's done all the, the similar distribution deals. Yeah. He's like just in front of me going through the prickle bushes. Yeah. And so right. I'm like, oh, what's happening? Tell me, what are you doing? And That's cool, doing... though, that you're through that, you sort of become mates with him. Yeah, how, he's how a fucking you, cool guy, man. How did yeah. you guys meet? How did you? It together. I was in Annecy. Uh, I was doing. I did some work for Titmouse in in, in oh, Los Angeles. I was that on the Motor City. Project? I did some Motor City designs, yeah. but uh, they did this thing with Metallica called Metallica Parking Lot, and Titmouse phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to do the joint smoking scene with Kurt Hammett. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. So, <laughs> uh, why, why do you think they contacted you specifically? For I don't know. I don't smoking? even smoke pot anymore, but you know. <laughs> So the, you know, I, I did uh, this scene of Kurt Hammett smoking a joint. And so I kind of had this notoriety, not notoriety, but kind of like I was on the radar yeah. of, of uh, Robert Trujillo, because I think he was behind that uh, Metallica parking lot mm-hmm. job. And then I was at Annecy and I saw Antonio from Titmouse. And I said, oh, hey, Antonio, how's it going? And he goes, hey, how's it going? Oh, this is Robert. Robert, this is Robert. And I said, oh, hey, Robert, how's it going? And he's like a really nice guy. And yeah. I said, hey, Robert, how's it going? And I said, do you want to uh, you want to come and see my book? Or, you know, I just like yeah, yeah. just wanted to show him some stuff. And he's mm-hmm. like, cool. So he came over to my table because I was set up at the MIFA there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Selling books, you know. Yeah. And then I was had a little screening of the early stages of my Pear Cider project. Right. So he hung around and he sort of looked at it and he saw the sequence I had, which had a Black Sabbath song. Mm. And he's like, cool, man. I like that. Yeah. You know, I'm a musician. I said, oh, yeah. What do you do? He says, I play bass. I said, oh, yeah. Uh, at this point, you didn't know who it was. No, I didn't. Right, right, right. I didn't know that Metallica had changed their bass player. Right, right, right. So we talked a little bit and I said, oh, yeah, what band are you in? He says, oh, I'm in, I'm in Metallica. <laughs> 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 and I was like, "What? You're Metall- you don't look like that bass player from Metallica." So uh, sure enough, yeah, he was a Metallica. So and so, and he re- he recorded original stuff. Yeah, he's got a side project called Mass Mental. Okay. Yeah. So the conversation started there, mm-hmm. but really, I had to go away for a couple of years and finish the animation. Yeah. Because uh, there's really not much to really. Uh, there's not really much to to work on until the animation's finished. Right. Mm-hmm. So that arrangement 
with him and mass, his mass mental mm. crew started in, in earnest at the beginning of December. This year? Yeah. Oh, uh, last year? Yeah, so the last couple, two, three months. Right, wow. That's yeah. pretty quick. Yeah, so we dipped into their old catalog, which goes yeah. back to like 1996. Oh, really? And they recorded some, uh, some more original tracks. And, uh, you know, it all fits in there kind of nicely. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's good. How, so how, how did the um, project start out? Is it, is it, I haven't actually seen it. We're going to... You're going to see them Friday. Friday. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you guys reserved already? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah okay, good. Yeah. yeah, a while back. That's um, good, that's good. But we, uh, but yeah, so what, what is the, what's the story? It's about a friend of yours, right? Yeah, it's a true story about, um, it's about a friend of mine that I, uh, I grew up with. And, um, you know, without actually getting into the story, I had, I went through this kind of ordeal with um, techno. It's not his real name, mm. but I kind of, you know, mixed up the letters in his name. Right. Is that like an anagram? Yeah, an anagram. An anagram? Okay, well, you know, I did something like that. Yeah. And I thought techno is a cool name because yeah. he was kind of a techno kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And, but anyways, I went through this ordeal with techno that, um, that kind of ended up in China. <laughs> And, uh, that is definitely qualifies as an ordeal. I think if you end up in China, it was an ordeal, and it it it, it kind of it 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 didn't completely end in China because it it the final chapter was in Vancouver. Mm. But when all was said and done, I was back here in London, and I was talking to a fellow at Passion. His name's Hugo Sands, and it was kind of fresh in my head the whole mm. story. And, you know, as you do when you go out for a pint or two, you kind of tell a story. Mm. And I kind of launched into this story. um, And Hugo listened to the whole story from start to finish pretty much uninterrupted. Mm. And it was like a three-pint story. (laughs) You know, however long that is, right? Yeah, depending on how thirsty you are. (laughs) Yeah. But I remember it was a three-pint story. Mm. And uh, at the end of it, he's like... That's a crazy story. And I'm like, well, I guess so. I don't know. And he says, you got to do something with that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Do something. Like, make a book or make a film. But that's like, I think the most interesting stories in this world are like stories that are are based on on real events or true stories. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm into. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I like that too. We started talking about Persepolis and, you know, uh, this graphic novel called uh, Shenzhen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Guy Deleuze. Yeah. And so, and that was that, you know, I didn't really think about it. Mm. And, but Hugo kept, uh, he kept sending me these emails afterwards about. Uh, Do you want one? Uh, no, I'm good. He kept sending me these emails saying, oh, dude, you got to do something with that story. And I'm like, Ugh. it didn't feel like. Yeah. I don't know. I was kind of reluctant. Uh, it felt like uh, like a really big, big project. Mm. Mm. It felt like, I, I've thought about it since, and it kind of felt like, it's a bit like saying, oh, dude, you got to walk from the from Alaska to Florida. 
that would be a great thing to do. Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, but oh It'd probably man. take less time, right? <laughs> well, I think it would probably take the same amount of time, <laughs> but two years, if, you know. Do you think it would take two years I to do that? that? You have a better idea than that. <laughs> oh. But you'd be reluctant to do that, right? Yeah. You'd want to have some money in the bank. Yeah. You'd want to be like mentally sort of willing to undertake something like that. So eventually, uh, I kind of, I wrote the script. And that was really the first steps in starting the whole project. And, uh, and that's like a, a script script, like, you know, writing, it's not storyboards. Or... No, it was a script. Right, yeah. Like, I'm not saying this is the kind of script you could take to movie studios and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, um, to me, it, it was, it, um, it represented the whole story from start to finish in, in one continuous kind of uh, telling because I wrote it all in kind of one evening. And, um, and I, I liked the script. You know, I liked the way... Was it a three-point script? <laughs> it might have been more. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was imperfect. Yeah. It was imperfect in its, in its structure. It was imperfect in, the, in the, the grammar wasn't perfect. There was punctuation mistakes. It wasn't formatted like a script. Mm. And that's why I liked it. You know, because it was imperfect. And when I thought about, like, the story, I just thought about, like, how someone's life is, is not like a... Is, if you take anyone's life, mm. it's not a perfect film. Mm. It, it, you know, if you take, like, a... a, like a if you take a, a movie, I suppose, especially animated film, you can see, like, they're kind of... They're kind of um, they're mapping out like a story arc and they want to break it into three acts mm. and they want to develop the character and every, every scene, all the fat's cut off. Mm. So every scene's kind of going somewhere and it, it seems like it's kind of a very, it's this well-crafted kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of perfect storytelling, which is fair enough. But I kind of wanted to do something which was more of a reflection of, of how someone's life actually is. Mm. You know, like, it, it's just like, it doesn't seem like, uh, like, at least the techno's life wasn't a perfect story. Yeah. There wasn't really three clear acts in it. Mm -hmm. And the, it wasn't conventional. Let's just put it like that. Yeah. But I, that's what I was kind of, I was kind of holding to, to that idea. Yeah. Like, I wanted to tell this fucked up story. And I suppose, you know, a lot of people along the way have kind of uh, suggested, you know, like ways of improving the story that was kind of altering the events. I said none of it is embellished at all. Well, it, it's the way I remember it. Okay. I'm not yeah. saying like, you know, this is the absolute way it was. Yeah. I'm just saying this is the way I recalled the events. So there's nothing in it where you're like, okay, I don't remember this happening, but this would be a cool scene. It's like none of that. There's, there's one sequence where he's on the bridge, and uh, I remember Techno saying that he was, that he had been close to death, like right on the edge. Yeah. And then he backed away from it. But he, f he knew what it was like to be on the edge of not existing anymore. Right. And I was like, well, what is that like? Yeah. And he says, it's just nothing. It's like a void. 
I said, oh, crazy. Well, what did he do? He says, you know, I just backed away from it, you know? Mm. And uh, so, the, like, the, 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 the representation of that in the images is, is, mm-hmm. is him on the bridge. Yeah, okay. And I fully see him, actually, at one point, being at, on the edge of, like, that bridge in Vancouver, mm. contemplating jumping off. But to me, that's not a stretch at all. Right, yeah. Like, I don't know if that actually took place, but that's where I took a little bit of creative license. Right, right, right. Yeah, based on the stuff that he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So how soon after that conversation with Hugo, was it Hugo? Hugo, yeah. Did you actually start working on it, even at the script stage? A couple of years. Oh, really? So after that conversation, it took a couple of years to... Yeah, because I had to go work at Disney for a while. Oh, yeah. yeah. Work on Tron. Yeah. So that was about a year and a half or so. When you okay. say you had to. I had to cash up a bit. Oh, right. Okay. I, I, I had just, uh, my son was born. Okay. And I was in this position where the gorillas kind of, uh, the gorillas work had dried up. And uh, Pete Candeland had uh, moved to New York. And Jamie had moved to, like, France. Yeah, he's in Paris or something, right? Yeah. So the, kind of like the, my main connection with passion had kind of changed. Yeah. And my, na- my, eration- my relationship with uh, that studio, it was different. Because every job I had done was with Pete. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Pete's not there. And I was kind of like, uh, a little bit like cast adrift. And then, you know, Charlie phoned up with that Tron work. And I thought, you know, okay, it's time for a change. And, you know, I have a, I have a new son. Yeah. And uh, I'll try it out. So we went to L.A. and did that for a couple of years. And that was with the whole family? Yeah, 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 yeah. We all moved down together. Did, did you, because we've got like a mutual friend called Christian Antonelli. Yeah. And I think he was working. He's a hell of a nice guy. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah. Um, he's not the best. <laughs> I beg to differ. Yeah. <laughs> you think he's the best? He's the best. Uh, and um, he, uh, I remember he was at Passion, I think, when you were there. Maybe you just started doing some stuff on Tron. Okay. He was oh like, yeah. Oh, Valley's doing these like Tron designs, man. Like they're incredible. And uh, how did that come about? Like, how did Tron come about? Yeah, because it seemed like they sort of they plucked you and Alberto Mielgo. Yeah. Was that something that they like seen the, your you guys working there together? Or was you guys recommended? Yeah. Well, you know, there's this pattern that's always gone through like my my history in animation is one job naturally leads to another. Okay. As, you know, provided it's not a stinker. If mm. it's a stinker, that'll probably go nowhere. Yeah. But if it's a good job, it will. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Gorillas, not for me, but for Pete, naturally yeah. led to the Beatles rock band. Yeah. And the Beatles rock band naturally led to Tron, mm. for me and Alberto. Yeah. And I, I think, like, Pete was kind of talking to Charlie because Pete and Charlie are friends like we're all friends right but Pete got busy with stuff it was unlikely that Pete was going to get like roped into that stuff in any big way Mm. but I think Alberto and I were kind of up for that Mm. you know for a little uh, relocation a little bit of uh, working on a TV series Mm. you know it's a change right yeah yeah so um, <laughs> it was funny. I showed up like at, at Tron, and I, I was in the producer's office, like Mary, yeah. the producer. 
And I thought I had signed up for like a bunch of shorts. And she had the schedule on the, on the wall that when it, it went like a year and a half into the future. And I'm like, holy crap, what's going on? How long do you think you were going to be there? I just thought it was going to be some shorts, right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, we're doing 20 half hours? I totally wasn't like ready for that. She's it, like, yeah, what do you think we got a visa for you for? Right. You know? So I, I kind of, a part of me felt like, oh shit, I'm going to have to put my personal work aside for a while. Yeah. And I was a little bit um, disappointed about that. Because I like to put out a book every like year, year and a half. How long yeah. did you? But how long did you think you were going to be in LA for? Because you moved the whole family over and stuff. Oh, I, you know, I had this funny idea that we'd be in and out, but I'd have a visa right. that would go on for a while. Okay. So <laughs> I know it's stupid, isn't it? But is the kid like going to school over there and stuff? No, he was uh, just a baby. Oh right. Yeah, we moved to. Uh, we we packed up my truck and we drove down when Jackson was three months old. So it was those first years, right? Didn't have to worry about school mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Jackson's a good name. <laughs> yeah, he's a bastard. So what were your kind of, um, what was your role in it? Because was it character design and boards or did you direct in? It was originally character designer. Okay. But as we started to get into it, Charlie started to get a little overwhelmed with the um, directing and doing the story uh, supervising. So he asked if I could help on every uh, second episode okay. after like episode seven. So I think I was involved in about half a dozen episodes, yeah. maybe not even that many. And then I, I really put my hands on one episode in particular, it was episode 14, uh, where they're on the train and I got a directing credit on that, oh, cool. which was probably a little generous on Charlie's part, mm. but that was just kind of a, uh, a recognition of all the, the overall work that got put into it. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah, Charlie's a pretty cool guy. And He's the you... only director I've ever worked for that never pissed me off at all. Really? <laughs> That's, That's weird, incredible. huh? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're working for somebody, they're telling you what to do. Yeah. For some yeah. reason, Charlie was great at it. Yeah. The you, I mean, the the one thing that strikes me about your career is that you've you've done a a ton of amazing stuff, but it's you seem to be particularly good at collaborating with people. It seems like you're always working, not necessarily as a director, but in some kind of collaborative capacity. Yeah, like you talked about Pete Candeland, yeah, Alberto Mialco, yeah, um, this this guy Charlie is director of Tron. Yeah, well. Um I had spent like a good part of my career kind of shadowing other directors. Mm-hmm. First, it was Peter Chung. Right. And I had spent... Let's get into that. Okay. <laughs> well, I spent you know, the first part of my career with one Peter and the second part of my career with another Peter. And then I kind of ended up with Charlie a little bit later. You know, but Jamie's in there too yeah. in some sort of capacity. Yeah. But There's a lot of Peters in animation, I find. Yeah, yeah. I was saying, you know, I could easily end up, you know, having drinks with three Pete's, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to drink, Pete? Yeah. I'll, be, I'll go, you. Just shout that out <laughs> in the office. Yeah, that's somebody shout Pete. Come with you. It's yeah, be exactly. Expensive round. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, so, what was the first project you worked with on the, with the first Peter? Uh, it was Eon Flux. Oh right. Okay. That was like my first real job. Right. Yeah. So, 
you know, I went in search of Peter Chung because I saw Eno Flux mm. back in 1993 or something. And uh, that was kind of the kind of thing I was into back then. Mm. I was into, uh, like, uh, human anatomy. Um, I was into Frazetta. Yeah. And uh, Neil Adams. And uh, Force Perspective. I hadn't really got into architecture at that time. Uh-huh. But you were into all this stuff before Peter Chung, like the anatomy and the force perspective. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I showed up with like that stuff in my quiver. Mm-hmm. But Peter kind of uh, introduced me to a stylistically kind of more uh, anime, kind mm-hmm. of manga style. Yeah. Kind of, uh, but not totally uh, manga. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a... Uh, maybe a Korean or a Europeanized kind of manga. Mm-hmm. It was a hybrid of some sort. Yeah. Because uh, he always references Egon Schiele. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he, he kind of pairs up his stylistic thing in a certain way, right? But, uh, but So prior to this, there's a website called Katsuka that we all follow. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they've got a bunch of your work up, like some of your older stuff, like commercials and things. Yeah. And one of the things that they got up there is, um, I think it might be your student film. Yeah. Is that from, were you at, uh, somewhere in Vancouver? Was yeah, I went to art school in Vancouver. So right. I did a little uh, two or three minute uh, animated film. And it's a, it's a, it's like a dude walking through a desert and there's an eagle and stuff. Yeah, it's just right? like uh, very rough kind of anatomical type drawings and that's what I showed Peter Chung right, right. and he looked at it and it was he was able to see all the rough line work mm-hmm. and see the drawing underneath yeah because that to me looks like that would have been absolute gold dust to Peter Chung at that point yeah. you know when he was doing something like Aeon Flux yeah it seems like all the ingredients are there yeah to, to be able to yeah to work on something like Aeon Flux well, yeah, like I said, he, I think he was able to see through all that. And he, w- what Peter kind of, um, what he kind of taught me was to to be a lot more precise and economical with the line work. Uh, precise in your drawing and precise in your thinking. And so basically where I was using a half a dozen or a dozen lines to sort of, to make um, a bit of a drawing, like an arm or something like that, he would use one continuous piece of line work. And I thought that that was impressive, you know, and it was, to me, it showed like in the next level of, of clarity of thinking. Mm. And, it, you know, if, if you're in an industry where you got to stack drawings on top of each other, you know, to, to get through your work, you know, I think you got to start thinking a little bit more economically mm. at a certain point. Yeah. So, you know, that was part of my learning curve. And, and did he do a lot of actual drawing on the show Peter Chung oh fuck yeah yeah oh yeah he did because uh, there's a lot going on on that show other than the drawing I, yeah I didn't know like whether he was just overseeing the whole thing or whether he was yeah no Peter's a workhorse man yeah yeah he takes a while to get going but once he gets going he's he's, uh, he's a workhorse mm-hmm. it's quite a it's quite a thing yeah. And, and, and what were you doing exactly on that? Was it storyboards? I was storyboarding, yeah. He let me direct an episode. Oh, yeah? Which, which was like was the worst episode. Oh, shit. It was called Ether Drift Theory. And I, I just like... What uh, happens in that one? 
they're kind of in this cube in outer space, and this green goo starts to eat through everything. And I can't remember that. Eats up the whole cube. Is that series one? No, it's part of one of the half hours. Right. Yeah. But that's pretty amazing. That was your first job out of school. And... Uh, yeah. So I put my time in on the storyboards. Right. And then by episode like 14 or 18 or something, he thought, okay, I need some help, basically. Yeah. You want to take it one step further, mm. you know? And he sort of posed that challenge to me. Uh, and I said, yeah, I'm ready. He must have been a pretty young guy at that time too, right? He was five years older than me. Right. But uh, And he was managing that whole series. and. Oh, yeah, Peter's... Yeah. That's an incredible... He's an, he's an awesome human. Yeah. Yeah. He's was, really highly functioning human. Was that what you wanted to do when you joined, when you approached him to work on, to work with him? Did you want to do boards or was you sort of disappointed that you didn't get to animate on it or... No, I wanted to work for Peter Chung. I wanted to get close to him. I wanted to uh, interact with him. Mm. I wanted to draw that Flux character... And I wanted to project my own ideas uh, in regards to the staging and action and stuff. And um, it was a good it was a good time for me to sharpen my teeth in terms of, uh, you know, when I say like projecting my ideas, I'm talking about just reading the script and having like these cinematic ideas yeah. and playing them out. Yeah. And uh, I kind of used Peter's uh, his. Uh, previous, you know, flux work is like the the leaping off point. I wanted to try those ideas, uh-huh. and so. Uh, but it, those scripts, they were, they were full. They were f- like very, like thirty-five, forty-page scripts for a twenty-two-minute episode. So I'd love to read them, man. Oh man, there was so much stuff going on. If anything, I think that stuff could have used a little bit more editing. Right. You know. Uh, at the time, and, I, and especially now, I, I think I'm more into like nicely paced out stuff than trying to cram a whole bunch of stuff into a short period of time because yeah. that just makes the pacing seem a little bit rough. Yeah. Where, yeah. where, was, where, where was that based out of? Uh, San Francisco, okay. Colossal Pictures. So you moved from Canada down to San Francisco to do that job. Was that? Yeah. Uh, like a visa and stuff? Yeah, they got me a visa. Okay. Yeah. Um, a certain kind of uh, uh, treaties, like visa treaties, between like the like uh, Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I got a, a TN visa. And, um, and then I ended up spending like 10 years in the States, in San Francisco. And I started... A studio, which isn't really that much different to, than to what you guys have going on here, that was called Maverick Studios, mm-hmm. and basically, uh, I rented a space. It almost the same size as this, except it was kind of one room, and it was right kind of in the heart of San Francisco, kind of in the industrial part of San Francisco. And um, Colossal had uh, f- filed Chapter Eleven, which is bankruptcy. And there was all this like commercial work floating around, but there was really there wasn't that big colossal pictures gobbling up all the work. Right. So I thought, oh, let's fucking start up a studio and start to go after this, some of this, some of these big Nike jobs. 
And that's when Wild Brain started up too. Right. And we're, we're both kind of offshoots of Colossal. And we started bidding against each other for some of these kind of Nike spots. You know, like I said, they were like $300,000 budgets. Wow. And we lost the first one, but we got the second one. Our little room with me and a couple other people. We pulled in a $300,000 job. And then we pulled in two more after that. Wow. And then it wasn't long after that we sort of uh, got descended upon by these kind of New York, uh, New York company that was offering representation and production assistance, which we desperately needed at that time. So did it you, felt did like- you have a producer in you, the building? Yeah, it was my girlfriend. Her okay. name was Jeannie. And uh, so Jeannie and I, we had sort of, we, had, we kind of positioned ourselves on this wave, yeah. right in the right spot, the right time. Yeah. And right when that wave came, this other New York company came and kind of swooped in. Right. And everything went through them. What were they called? I'm not going to get into that. Right, right, right. Yeah. But um, we kind of like, we kind of sold out right away. Right. And because we were unsure about, I guess, everything. You know, like the insurance, the liability, the equipment, the computers. Yeah. Everything. And so we thought we wanted to... uh, partner up with another company mm. and so uh, we immediately regretted that we still s- now well, I don't know about now but okay. at the time we immediately regretted <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it and we thought what the fuck I can't believe we did that you know what I mean yeah. but you got, you got a chunk of cash I guess yeah but we lost our autonomy right. you know what I mean like the cash was one thing mm-hmm. but it's like we wanted to be freely operating and we, we kind of lost that. Right. And so over the course of time, or like we brought in a bit of work. Mm-hmm. The only way out of the contract was by not doing any work. Because if I had gross billed like something like a million dollars or something in, in, a, in a year, mm-hmm. that would automatically renew the contract. Right, okay. So I was right on the cusp of that at like $800,000 or something. Right. And I decided like not to work. Because I didn't want to renew the contract. He was literally batting, batting away pitches and projects. And yeah. Saying, wow. We went. We kind of uh, went back to our studio, and we we're just sitting there, thinking like, "This is the only way we can get out of this contract." And and then uh, Jamie Baker was there, and Bosco was there, kind of people that were working at, at Colossal Pictures, and for one reason or another, we're all sitting around kind of in one state of unemployment or another, kind of wondering what to do with our fucking lives. And Jamie goes, I got an idea. I go, what? He goes, Comic-Con. I go, what? He goes, Comic-Con. You want to do comics, right? I went, yeah. He goes, that's what I want to do. And Bosco goes, I want to do comics too. So we all decided to sort of pitch up our tents there and start doing comic books. And we got a table for Comic-Con. And we did our little first edition sort of Kinko's books. Yeah. And um, started selling those little books there at Comic-Con. And... Uh, Is that where you met Kevin Eastman? Uh, pretty close, yeah. Like right around that time. And so I had sort of turned my back on the commercial industry at that mm-hmm. time and in favor of doing... Uh, 
this kind of, I was kind of, it was kind of forced upon us contractually to sort of pursue this other alternative. But then we realized that this was really our passion all along. So we pursued this. And you know what? It started off with the three of us, and then we sucked in more people. And before we knew it, we had a, a, a studio full of independent artists, like a collective of people, mm-hmm. that were hell-bent on trying to make a go of it uh, independently, doing yeah. comic books. And we called ourselves... So, business to, to make money out of. Oh, we didn't succeed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we never succeeded at that. Sorry, you saying what that you guys were called? Maverick Studios. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So Maverick Studios existed for the better part of ten years or something. That's a pretty decent like, had a pretty good run at yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. And that whole time you're doing comics. Is that right? Well, everybody had a day job. Right. So Derek worked uh, up at Pixar. Uh, Tony worked uh, at ILM. His day job, oh, he just works at Pixar. Yeah. <laughs> you going to say yeah, stacking yeah. shelves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that must have been tough, and man. It was John Lester, and he yeah. was just, yeah, day But we would all gather at night or on weekends. Yeah. And we would be, at, you know, especially like a few months before Comic-Con. Yeah. And we'd take a good run at it. Yeah. And start to refocus our energies. And Show was there, and Stuart Lee was there, and... You know, the, 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 you know, then, you know, Victor and, and Vaughn came in and there was like a group of us there. And, um, but we operated more like a, like a, a co-op or a collective. Yeah, yeah. We all shared the expenses. Yeah. We all had similar goals, but we all operated independently, mm-hmm. which was good. Yeah. Did you like that setup? I really liked it. Yeah. Like, I, occasionally I, I would... S- proposed with the talent that we had at the studio mm-hmm. i would say well let's get in a job well, let's do yeah. it together and everybody would be like nah you know what i mean yeah. like we didn't want to work for each other mm. we right. just wanted to work but did you not ever you not not ever think about doing like a film together like a short or something we could never get our shit together right, right, right. yeah our motto was uh maverick studios operating without a business plan since 2002 <laughs> and that's the way we operated yeah so it was good for you know the time that it lasted yeah i'm speaking from experience that's a nice way to uh, run you guys yeah. can kind of relate to that right <laughs> yeah definitely yeah. It's, it's almost like you're just sort of talking about us <laughs> <laughs> i know i'm sort of like passively trying to like impart some yeah, some yeah, wisdom yeah, here know. you know yeah, yeah. Um, Really That's why I walk in and I talk to you guys, and I see like a younger version of myself, <laughs> and I just want to help you guys, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> you guys gotta so figure it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what? Uh, what was the kind of reason why you guys sort of went in different directions in the end? Was it sort of like people started having families, or they sort of got promoted at Pixar? <laughs> no, I, I kind of splintered off. Oh, okay. Um, and I ended up uh, in London, working on gorillas. Oh right! And how did that happen? Did you? I think I've heard in like a different in another interview, you sort of saw one of the videos and yeah, it was like I need to work. Yeah, on Andrew it. Ruman sent us a VHS of Clint Eastwood. Sent uh, it to Maverick Studios. VHS. Yeah. Right. And it was it was kind of like look what we've been working on, and it was it blew our minds. And that was Pete Candeland. Yeah. So who sent that to you? Andrew Ruman. And he was he'd worked on the first. He was the, he's he's the owner of Passion Pictures. Oh right, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he sent like, look what we just did. Oh right. You know. 
And that was line tests and stuff, or that was the finish? That was the finish thing. Okay. Yeah, blew our minds. I ended up in London shortly after that. And then that's when I, um, you know, basically uh, offered up my services uh, to Pete to work on that gorilla stuff. I was quite happy to, um, just to work in whatever capacity. And, uh, and then that kind of arrangement went on for several years. Mm. And, uh, you know, until that Tron stuff happened. Yeah. You know, so it seems like with the, the, the lifespan of every kind of studio, mm. it's sort of like, it kind of goes up and it peaks out and it goes down again. Yeah, yeah. So I experienced that at, at uh, Colossal Pictures for the first time. Mm-hmm. I experienced that at Maverick Studios. Yeah. And then I experienced that at Passion Pictures. Right. What, what do you think that is? You know, people change. It's not like Passion Pictures kind of crescendoed out and then tapered off. It's just like the, the arrangement that I had there had sort of, uh, it kind of ran its course mm-hmm. and then it changed. Yeah. And then, you know, circumstances change. It's not like stuff going out of style. It's like the people changing. There's people changing. Yeah. 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 That's exactly it. And, you know, you get to the point where you're, you're kind of comfortable with the people that you're used to working with, right? Mm. And then if, if the whole cast of characters changes, like for me, I've always felt like this kind of connection with the people that I work with. And so if you totally change the people out, you know, that kind of like takes, you know, it takes something away yeah, from the whole experience. It's like a band that doesn't have any original members. In <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, so and uh, did that sort of coincide with you getting the job offer at Disney or did you, you sort of felt it was on the cards anyway? Hmm. No, I was fucked. I was unemployed. I had that baby. And Charlie phoned up and said, um, no, I phoned him. I said, uh, I want to come down to L.A. and I want to work with you. Mm. And he says, really? I said, yeah. So they uh, sorted out the, the visa stuff. Uh-huh. And then I was pretty much sorted out and went down there. Had a little run at it. Yeah. How do you find working at Disney? Was it different from working in Passion or? Yeah, it was all right. It was big, you know. Yeah. You know, like I said, working with Charlie was pretty good. And working with Alberto was, you know, uh, it's like being uh, uh, really at the top of your game, you know, because he kind of is working at a really high level. Mm. And um, <clears throat> that's uh, it's kind of a high stress. Mm. Kind of, not, not high stress, but it feels like you got to be working at the higher level. Oh, like personally, you're like, I feel stressed out because you feel like you've got to push more because you're working with people like that. Yeah, you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? Like, oh my God, these backgrounds are amazing, but yeah, look at yeah, the yeah. shitty characters in his eyes. And he was art director on that. Yeah. He? he must have like raised the bar for a lot of people who are working on that, I assume, like when you see those things coming through. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. Like, um, I thought like working with Alberto or next to him, I'd kind of figure something out, but I, yeah. don't, I have no idea. I don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. No idea. You know, um, people have their own way of doing things, I think. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to like the gorilla stuff because like that is, I don't think there's been a project that's been more influential on, on me. Like I just, 
it happened around the time when I was thinking about getting into animation. It was such a huge inspiration, and like, what, um, what was the first video that you worked on for that? Was it see the first? It was um, one. like a scene or two of nineteen two thousand. Oh, okay. Like Russell playing the drums at the end, oh, yeah, and then yeah. nodding off. Yeah. And then, um, and then uh, that first. Uh, that was the last promo off that first album, so I kind of missed the, that wave. Yeah. But there were some uh, little bits of guerrilla stuff that happened afterwards. Oh, the little the, the things for the DVD or something. Yeah, there were some guerrilla's bites that I did. Right, yeah. yeah. But the first thing I did was this... Um, it was this award acceptance thing where if the guerrillas won this award, they wanted to have this animated kind of thing ready. And I don't think they won, but there was a bit of like, uh, there was a bit of a uh, controversy about how much money was spent coming up with this thing. Oh, and, and it, has it never seen the light of day? I don't think it ever got aired. Oh my god! I don't remember how it all played out, but and it was two D animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. You know, I was just following along in Pete's footsteps there. Yeah. So. Um, and was you a big fan of Hewlett's before um, you worked on Gorillaz? Was that, or was it just because you saw that project? Oh yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, totally dig it. Yeah, I love the. You know, in a way, it opened my eyes to a certain way of uh, simplifying and you know uh, the graphic look. Like if you look at my Parasider movie, mm -hmm. which you will. Yeah. two days Friday. you'll notice that there's some gorilla's influence in there yeah in terms of the line quality the thick outlines and sometimes there's it's simplified a little bit the kind of um, filter that it's coming through for me has I can never shake off those Peter Chung influences yeah so there's always going to be like a little bit of detail mm -hmm. mixed in with a little bit of graphic simplification mm -hmm. and I kind of boil it through my own little uh, Photoshop methodology and yeah. it kind of looks the way it does. Yeah. But if you kind of look at it with those eyes, you can kind of see where the influences are coming from. You, you say this, but I think you're giving these people too much credit. Like, I feel <laughs> like you, you know, like, as I was saying before, like, you turned up at Peter Chung's door, yeah. you know, with, you were bringing a lot to the table. And I think... I had a little, I like a little Frazetta thing going on. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's it, you know, it's the same <laughs> thing with Jamie Hewlett. Like, I kind of feel like as soon as you're, as soon as you turned up there, kind of raise the bar a little bit I don't know yeah those videos man I don't have I didn't really have anything to do with that I've, I've heard Canadians very self-deprecating it didn't feel like I was, was at the time you know like it was there was a, there was a pecking order it was Jamie yeah. it was Pete and then there was me there was Heath uh, there was Ricky you know uh, in terms of animation mm. Daryl was in on that stuff like we all kind of mucked in on that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was game. Definitely I was the game for just like with Peter Chung, like when opportunity presented itself, I was willing to to step in as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, just like Heath was. Like we were all hungry on that stuff. Yeah. We loved what Pete had done. And we wanted to emulate that so much. Mm. And when Pete started offering up, you know, um, 
bits of opportunity, mm-hmm. we were all happily just willing to gobble it up. Yeah. And I was, I was part of, the, you know, me, Heath, Dan, yeah. um, you know, Daryl. Mm. You know, we loved it. We loved it. And it wasn't even like we were ambitious about it. Mm-hmm. We loved it because we wanted to add another link onto the chain yeah. and keep the quality up, you know. And at a certain point, it seemed like the, the budget part of it wasn't, wasn't uh, able to finance us wanting to, like, make it look uh, at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, it was like a piece of rope that was getting pulled in two different directions. Yeah. And, you know, the, the money part always wins out at the end. Right. When the producer says, you know, we got to pull the plug on it, mm. that's kind of what it looks like at the end of the day. Yeah. Even if you're willing to work weekends for free, which we were. Yeah. We yeah. were so fucking horny on that stuff. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Were you just working the whole time? Like when you were working on that show, when you were on AM Flux at the beginning? Yeah. Were you just like working night and day? Was there like much of a life outside of that? No, no. Never went clubbing. I was like, my whole 20s was just completely work filled. I never went to a nightclub until I was like 30. <laughs> I used to go to work at like, five in the morning on a Sunday and drive by these uh, nightclubs and there's all these people lined up and I was thinking what the fuck is going on a year later I'm in that fucking lineup and I'm like now I know what's going on yeah you know what I mean yeah like I figured it out after a while yeah man yeah because when I when I first started when I first discovered your work and it was just all just like clubbing and people getting blowjobs and toilets I was like Shit, man, this guy must be some kind of rock star. Like, no, I just discovered that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That was like yeah. in my early thirties. Yeah, yeah. Because right. like all through my twenties, like I said, I was completely driven. I was work driven. Yeah, that's all I did. Yeah, you know, I wasn't able to have uh, relationships with my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way it was. I was obsessed. Yeah, you know, and but it was. That kind of um, obsession, it's, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Like, you need to have, like, human relationships, and you need to blow off some steam. Yeah. If you don't do it at the time, it's going to come out later in some weird way. Mm. And um, so that was kind of just the progression that I had. But it's, it's cool to... I think that's the one thing that's, like, really interesting about your work is that, like, when you tell these stories, I can see it all in your work. Like, if you're telling me, like, my 20s I just honed my craft and just busted it and then in my 30s I like went out and partied and that you can see it in your work do you know what I mean and like even you're talking about all these people you've worked with yeah you can see kind of like influence from some of these directors you've worked with but then it also just gets plugged into you and you can see and it becomes part of your style and it's um that's almost feels like a skill in itself do you know what I mean that you can to absorb all this kind of like knowledge and experience and then let it come out through your work well you know what the next link on that chain is right. is once all that parting was done and I had the kid yeah. and I did my little tour of duty at Disney yeah. then the next part of my life was a lot different and the film the Pear Cider film mm-hmm. is kind of uh, a reflection of uh, kind of the way I've been thinking in the last few years. Mm-hmm. If if the 
if the partying and clubbing thing is kind of a reflection of that part of my life, I'm kind of like not thinking like that anymore. Yeah. So, you know, what I'm sort of presenting uh, on Friday is kind of, uh, kind of like, uh, for better or worse, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, mm-hmm. but it's kind of me a little further down the pipeline. Yeah. You know, I think differently. Yeah. Like it does, it wouldn't even cross my mind to do like blowjobs in the bathroom. It's well, it would, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Good mate, don't break my heart. But there's other, there's other things going on. No, no, of course. And I just, and that's what's the work is going to reflect what's going on. But that's, but, but that's kind of my point is that like someone might be like, well, I've done this stuff and I've got a good following from it. I'm just going to stick to that. Whereas, yeah in the same fashion that led to that kind of work, you're like, well, I'm, I've done that and I've got a new stage in my life and now I'm yeah. letting that influence my work. And I think that's like quite rare. I find that very hard to, to, to put into my work. You know, it might be good or not. I don't know. You know, like Paul McCartney wrote yesterday when he was in his 20s, mm-hmm. but his later work sucks ass. Uh, he did some good stuff, man. Oh, definitely. Maybe not now. He's no, talking about Baby, I'm amazed. Stuff like that. But he couldn't write a song now at the level of yesterday. Yeah. Now, how is it possible for a 20 year old person to write a song like that, like a masterpiece? Yeah. And when you're like 50 years older, mm-hmm. you're not capable of writing the same thing. Yeah. So there must be something about like youth and that kind of energy that if you can tap into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, like, definitely. you might think you're doing your best work when you're in your 40s and stuff, but it's actually shit. But there, I think there's a difference between, <laughs> like... I think that there's a difference between uh, different crafts, because you do get... You hear people talk about... In jazz, you hear people talk about jazz years, right? Yeah. Like, people who are, like, older tend to do better work, and you see it with writers as well. It's not like they all yeah. go downhill towards the end of... Yeah, their careers. It's like it takes such a long time to yeah. develop that craft, as opposed to pop music. Yeah, that you you actually have like a, a longer cycle. And yeah, it may, may peak later. Yeah, I'm. I think I've got my fingers crossed that I'm going to peak uh, much later in life. Well, I think filmmaking is like that. Yeah, it's not like you're a basketball and player or anything. Particularly, I think just because there's so much to learn. But maybe I like disagree. Paul McCartney really? sort of sucks because he is still trying to write another yesterday instead of writing about giving half his assets to someone with one leg like instead of just being influenced by what's happening to him now yeah uh, do you know what I mean like I think if uh, no I mean I have to be honest like I've got a friend who's like really into Paul McCartney and he was sort of trying to tell me about now he's doing good stuff and he was playing me some things and I was like "Mm." well look I'm not bringing on Paul McCartney to talk about (laughs) you know how good or bad his work is yeah. I'm just saying that you could be a little further on in your career mm. and think that you're putting out the, your best work yeah. and it doesn't really, um, it, it doesn't register. Yeah. So whereas that, that earlier work that I did, mm-hmm. if it did have like a little bit of, um, you know, if people looked at it, like, oh, I like partying and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know, they might look at my later bit of work and think, oh, this is dumb. Yeah. Okay. So Possibly. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. What's your What's your life like now? That's being reflected in this work. That's different than it was before. Um, 
what's different is, um, oh, fuck, man. It's just like fucking, life is fucking shitty. You know, like in some ways, like, I feel like I've been through the ringer a little bit. And I don't mean like life is shitty. No, that's not the right way to start off that sentence. But, you know, it just feels like now that I'm kind of 40-ish and late 40s, you know, certain things have happened to me. And I, I feel like... Uh, the stakes are a lot higher. And... I don't, I don't, I, I'm kind of looking at my career like a baseball game. And I'm like in the later innings. I'm like in the, in the bottom of the seventh probably right now. Mm-hmm. It's not over yet. Yeah. But, but I'm a lot more serious when I'm at bat right now than I was earlier. And, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, uh, when those pitches come in, that I'm able to like, like hit him out of the park. Yeah. Because I want that uh, in my career. When I say that, I mean like, I want to be able to finish this film, which I did. Yeah. But I want to do another film. Yeah. And I, but next time I want to have a budget. Yeah. I want to have a proper budget. So this film is kind of like. At some point in my life, I wanted to, I wanted to project an image of the way I see things, not uh, the way it had gone before that, which, which is like, like I'm following someone else's instruction, or someone else's brief, or someone else's script. You know, like I wanted to have an opportunity to uh, have uh, my own uh, idea, and 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 to execute that idea yeah. without compromising and to see what it looks like. Yeah. And to be honest, I look at that film. I just looked at it today. Mm-hmm. I just looked at Cara and I went like, what the fuck is this film about? It's fucking weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. It's just like, I know. It's, it is what it is, you know? <laughs> no, really. You've got it is what it is. Yeah. But, but she, she wasn't the... Every... every, every <laughs> editor, every colorist, everybody who's on the last stage of every film hears that exact same thing from every director who's just been through an ordeal like that. Yeah. yeah it's, I, it's like staring at a color that, and it just becomes gray after a while. You know, like if you've been on it for two years, yeah. it must be hard to look at that thing and have any kind of objective kind of point of view on it. Well, it's more than two years, but... Yeah. You know, I, and then I said to Cara, you know... I think I made about 10,000 decisions or more. I don't know what the number is, but let's say there's been a series of decision-making and I made a couple of bad decisions. A couple. From a filmmaking point of view? Yeah. Okay. Through the whole course of this whole project. Mm -hmm. And what I see when I look at it are those two bad (laughs) decisions Uh, that I made. I don't see like the other one. Yeah. So she's like, "Fucking relax," you know. Yeah. It's just how yeah. do you how do you deal with that kind of snow blindness? 
Can you be more specific? So we're talking about this whole concept of being right in the middle of something and not being able to see yeah. the wood for the trees. Is yeah. that the right expression? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm assuming that you've got some either people that you go and talk to who you trust yeah. or some sort of technique for getting out, out of it and seeing it more from like a global yeah. point of view. Well, in regards to this, this particular project, I just had the script. That's all I had. And uh, that kept me pretty much... Uh, I kept thinking about it like I was on a road trip or a long walk. You know, like I had to put the gas in the car. I had to, you know, make the repairs when it broke down. I knew where it was going. I just had to get there. And it was just a matter of driving the car, you know. And that's what it felt like, you know. It felt like I was driving alone for a lot, a lot of the time. And then uh, I partnered up with uh, Passion. And then it felt like it was more of a partnership with me and Cara. And it didn't happen often, but if I was drifting off the road... She'd uh, make sure that, that we were following the path that, mm -hmm. uh, that was laid out in the script. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of times where I was kind of like, uh, I needed some talking down. Not often, but a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I needed some talking down. She talked me down. Since, like, uh, like, in terms of your relationship with them, in terms of... Because like obviously like you work closely with Pete Candeland, he's sort of gone off to do, to, is it to do features or is he what heading out there? He's doing features. And is, is that something that you want to get into, like long, like kind of like a feature film, animated feature? No, I'm doing right now is exactly what I want to do. Okay. I just want to do more of it with the budget next time. You know, maybe a five minute film, uh, but I I know. With a five-minute film, I could probably get it done in a couple of months. Right. That's amazing. If I wanted to. And so just uh, on your Todd? Eh? Just by yourself? Just by myself. Wow. Yeah, I know I could. And I, I, I know I could figure out the music licensing like puzzle with Gary Welsh, mm -hmm. who did all the music licensing on Parasider. Yeah. So it, this is exactly what I want to do. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's, it's weird, but... I don't want to make music videos necessarily, mm -hmm. but I would like to make animated movies based on songs that I like. Yeah. So, you know, like Neil Young, Old Man, mm -hmm. is a song that I'd love to put some imagery to. Mm -hmm. And I know I could get that song for like a few thousand pounds, like yeah. maybe two or three thousand pounds. Yeah. And then, and then, and then what? It's sort of the, it's the opposite kind of um, scenario to doing a music video. Yeah. You know, where you're kind of, let's, let's say you did a, you, you got the music licensing to a song mm -hmm. and then you made a music video and you put it out on your website mm -hmm. and then where does it go from there? Like you tell me, mm. it's just something that you just do. Yeah. You know, like, uh, cause I don't know, it's kind of, that's always been what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to take songs that I like and, and animate them. Yeah. I suppose I like that's a, that's a format that's happening more and more often yeah, these yeah, days definitely. you know just because the the money's not all on the music side it's a little bit more of an equal dynamic it's like sometimes people are making pictures for the music or yeah. you know making music for the pictures it goes both ways I guess yeah. yeah I suppose it's like cracking that nut of like how do you 
do that and remain kind of self-financed or self-contained in in that production yeah it's sort of even to take like you said you could do what was it five minutes in a few months yeah like taking a few months off work could can you know cost a lot of money potentially and work you'd have to turn down and yeah. if, you, if you thought about rents and family and all that well no no just ways of like how you're because obviously you've sort of done it with this project and had a successful kickstarter which is amazing and is that something that you're thinking about building upon in order to kind of become more of a kind of independent animator or filmmaker well I guess so I, I think in the back of my head there was this kind of Richard Williams kind of uh, structure to running a studio mm-hmm. and financing your independent projects. Yeah. Which is you do money work uh, and make it look good. Mm-hmm. And you use that to finance your own independent projects. Okay. And so um, I've always, I always kind of thought, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, that might be like based on an old model. But that's kind of what I did with this Parasider project. Is right. you know I I would work on my Parasider film in the morning, mm-hmm. and I would do the money work in the afternoon. Uh, okay, so you were freelancing that. Oh, definitely. Time. Oh, oh yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was doing some freelance for Leica in oh, Portland. Oh, really? Yeah. On what uh, on the project? Can you talk about the project? I can't talk about it, but it was a project that's kind of further down the pipeline. Okay. So it's not greenlit yet. So that's why it didn't have a schedule. Mm-hmm. So in a particular month, I could work uh, however much or however little I, I needed to. Uh, okay. And it, that was sort of made, um, that was made clear at the beginning of our arrangement. Okay. So I said, look, I'm trying to finish this independent film. I love the script that you gave me, but I, I need to make it work around uh, the schedule I have uh, in terms of finishing my project. Okay. And they were like, yeah, fine. Because it's not even a greenlit project. And what what was your role in that? I was I was just like designing stuff. Wow, that's amazing. I'll just like I'll do anything. They'll give me a brief. I'll do like you know buildings and fucking characters. Just mostly character stuff. That's amazing. But I you know like I don't draw really the line anywhere. I'm not Alberto Mielgo. I don't really do that. But I'll take a crack at it. I would absolutely love to see a stop motion Robert Valley oh uh, film animated. Yeah. I like it, man. Man, if this happens, it would be cool. I I totally wasn't into working on anything. Mm -hmm. Then they sent me the script, and I thought, I cannot pass on this. And And that's great that it was able to support you. It's been a great arrangement. Yeah, Yeah, I totally appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those guys have been awesome. And if it's greenlit, would you, if you spoke about going on to the production? Would I go on the production? Yeah, if it gets greenlit. I don't know. Uh, I would, but I I, I kind of feel like at a certain point that they'll they'll probably transition me off the job, right? But I'll stay on as long as they want me to. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because there's I, I think your stuff I think your design style for how graphic it is it does it does suit a dimensional because I suppose you sort of that's one of the things you're great at is sort of like really like physical kind of animation. Like, I saw someone did um, a model of your Wonder Woman. Yeah. It looked so good. It's one, like, yeah. the best. Here's Camel Toe. <laughs> really? A little bit. <laughs> um, 
but that's that's one of the like it's such a really um, what's the word I'm looking for like uh, it stays really true to the design you know like it really works in a kind of 3D yeah uh, it's just, I mean it's the same well, that's the Tron stuff I guess yeah yeah the, well in the case of the Wonder Woman thing I don't, I don't know the sculptor's name offhand but he did a pretty good job there. yeah it's really good yeah so were you happy with that I was happy with it yeah yeah but uh, the the Tron stuff, the, the work that Polygon did on on that, and translating my translating my two D designs into three D geometry was mm-hmm. it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Those guys made that job look great. Yeah, yeah. It really takes a a certain kind of mind to do that right. I think. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it takes a great designer, but it also to get it into three yeah. D. Yeah. Really take somebody yeah, what were the, totally. What were the first kind of iterations of that light? Was you a bit like, oh, this isn't going to work? Or well, we went through that, yeah. yeah. And then it was like not working, not working, then it worked. Right. And so they probably knew with their pipeline that it was going to get to a certain point, but we just didn't see it till a certain Did level, you? you know. But it was, we always knew that it was going to be good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was there any talk of doing Tron originally in 2D? Was it there was. We totally did that. Really? Well, I wasn't really there for that because I was doing some other stuff. But Charlie and Alberto, the first Tron test they did that sold the series, we had 2D in there with really? some 3D. It was fucking awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. Who did the But 2D? the 2D totally fell off. Uh, was that, were they your designs for the 2D? They were. They were real crap designs. But they got like some of the best animators at the Japanese studio. I think it was Studio... Four degrees C or oh, really? Yeah, they got like oh the guy was called. They days. actually called him God or something like this, <laughs> right? But he only comes in and does like the beginning. What? Who is it? What's his name? I, I don't know. Oh, He's very highly so regarded there's a, Japanese. There's anime. a version of Tron, yeah. which is 2D animation yeah. of your designs done by Studio 4C, and it was and, and that's what God. sold the series. But they couldn't follow up on it because those guys were only available to do like the spec work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But surely there's so Is many... Is that available anywhere? Is that on a DVD extra or anything? <laughs> do you know? I don't know. I can talk to Charlie about it. It <laughs> might be kicking around somewhere. That, please, man. please. Yeah. But surely there's like with the kind of... There must be a lot of kind of like... They look good. Oh, I'm sure, man. Yeah, it was good. I think I did a little bit of wee-wee just then when you said that. Uh, the, <laughs> but surely, like, there must be a lot of amazing 2D animators in LA just from, you know, it not being a popular, you know, like with the kind of Disney not doing 2D features and stuff. Like, why would they not pursue doing in 2D? There must be so many incredible animators in America just sort of floating around. I don't know, man. Yeah. Maybe, like, with the the TV paint software coming out there might be more of a um, a pipeline of 2D animation that's actually um, financially worthwhile yeah have you like, used it? like the paper flipping is kind of like gotta scan that shit and yeah it just seems like that that's coming to like a logical end mm. but have, have you used TV paint? no I haven't man I think you'd be into it I would be into it and I'm, and I'm open to it yeah yeah but just for the time being I, I just followed you know, the path that I was on. Mm. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah I've, I've done some of your, well, I've looked at some of your Photoshop tutorials on your Patreon. They're fucked, aren't they? No, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a really interesting <laughs> way of working. I don't think anybody 
I don't know anybody mm. else who really works like that. How did you develop that? Was that on your own or was that? You know, I'm, I'm very familiar with Photoshop and, and that timeline came to my attention and we started uh, doing some uh, animation on that, those Wonder Woman shorts. That's when we kind of cracked that timeline. Mm. And then I sort of spun off after that and did some Shinjuku shorts and I kind of fine-tuned it, fine-tuned it. And uh, it was during the Shinjuku shorts that it occurred to me that I was able to, to, to go through footage like never before uh, all by myself. And I kind of finally mustered up the courage to work on the Parasider film. Mm-hmm. When I realized that I was able to actually pull it off, you know, that I could do it by myself. Because mm. that, that's kind of the one thing about 2D animation or animation yeah. in general, is it seems like it's to pull off any sort of like real footage, like minutes of stuff, it seems like a huge effort mm. that's going to involve lots of people. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a very daunting. Mm-hmm. undertaking it's expensive and it's complicated and the the idea that i was able to actually undertake that by myself yeah. without having to pull people into it and ask for favors and this kind of thing mm. um made me feel like yeah i can see it happening i can see it happening in a couple of years mm. not five years but a year or two i mean there are people doing 2D animation completely on their own. I mean, you know, they have been doing it for years. Like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, he was like a cartoonist for like maybe the New Yorker or something. He's always at animation festivals. You know the guy I'm talking about. <laughs> Just give me a second here. Oh, <laughs> Plimpton. Yeah, Bill Plimpton. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he's been doing that stuff. He's figured out a way of doing it. He's been doing it. Yeah. For ages. Yeah, that's his look. He's figured out like the the, the his look. Yeah. Or the frame rate and all that kind of stuff mm. is part of the pipeline. Yeah. That's how he manages to get through it, yeah. right? Yeah. But you're, you're saying that people are going to be producing, like, stuff of a, a higher finish. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. More quickly. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, like, I kind of want to do something a little bit more than stuff on fours, you know? And I want to make it approaching gorilla's quality but it's not going to be at that level, working by myself. Mm. But that's what I'm shooting for. So I want twos for the most part, with a few ones put in for some punch here and there. And, um, you know, some limited animation that's going to be, you know, efficiently planned, but nicely timed out. You know, the the whole thing needs to be very, uh, you know, it needs to be thought out yeah not just like oh, I'm just gonna fucking half-ass it yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I'm talking about is I want to try to do something to, to the best of my ability and make it look the way I see it in my head without making too many compromises mm-hmm. but figuring out an efficient way of doing it which is that's the puzzle yeah you know you got to sit down and figure out how am I going to get my head around this kind of thing yeah and for me I know you guys haven't seen this film yet the way that I had figured it out is I've got a series of frames and they're mostly first person because that's the way I like to stage my stuff. But, you know, if I've got like a scene, let's say it's a scene that's like staged from here and I'm sort of putting my hands out mm-hmm. like this. And then there's a certain action 
I go closer. It's, it's sort of like two different shots. Right. I'm not going to animate all the in-betweens. Yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just animate a little bit like this in the first scene, mm-hmm. and then I'll animate the second part in the second scene. Right. And then it carries through the cut. Right, right, right. And I'm cutting out all those awkward middle frames yeah. in the middle. That's part of the efficient planning that I'm talking about. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, if the guy's going to be like walking across a room, yeah. I'll just make a step or two, and then I'll cut. And then I'll have him get, get to where he's going to be yeah. and finish his step. Yeah. And all that shit in between is, I'm not going to bother with that. Because yeah, yeah. I'm only working alone. Yeah, yeah. I think when, it, when I saw your massives were the first film that you did. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the first times I was like, this is so clever in terms of how efficient you're being. There's yeah. like a bit where there's a strobe light going. Right. And so oh, you're yeah. obviously only drawing every sick drawing or maybe even 12 or something like that. That was a revelation to me. Yeah. <laughs> because I realized... We nicked that for one of our films. <laughs> how little information you need to put in to yeah. make it read. Yeah. And the black frames, I was like, I was like, one frame. Well, not one. Okay, let's yeah. try two. Yeah. And it's like, no, it could be more. Yeah, yeah. Let's go four. Yeah. No, let's go more. <laughs> let's go 12 with one frame or two frames. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like the ratio of black frames to actual frames of images was pretty short. Mm. Yeah. And it was still readable. Mm. And so then I, and this totally carries through into the Parasider project because I'm very much interested in the frames in between that you don't see yeah. and leaving it to your imagination yeah. as a way of, you know, as, a, as kind of like a, a, like a way of storytelling, mm-hmm. but also in a way of like cutting out a lot of the work. Yeah. So you'll notice when you're looking at my film that there's, there's a lot of black frames in there. And when you look at my film without the music, it's weird looking, man. <laughs> and there's like one scene that's like 13 seconds of black frame right. without the sound. Right. And wow. it looks dead. Mm. But with the, with the sound and everything in there, yeah. it's not. Yeah, yeah. But you sometimes get that with the movie as well, like where they start on black and just the music's building. Yeah. There's dialogue going or whatever. And dialogue totally carries it. Yeah, and if yeah. you yeah. haven't got the sound on, you're like watching the screen, you're like, my screen's fucked. Or if you're like YouTube and you've got the sound turned down, yeah. or everyone's like, it's broken. Why exactly, it yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. You know, That's where I want to be. I want to be where the sound is carrying a lot of the storytelling kind of action. One thing that I found really like clever about your approach to this film as well is that I remember when... The first time I learned of it, it was going to be, it was a book and you started posting frames of it on your, uh, you started like a blog or a, a blog site or something. And I remember like being like, whoa, and sort of scrolling through, like getting quite excited and scrolling through this, this page. And I think I went to like show someone like, oh, check this out. And I scrolled down and it was a bit of a guy diving off a bridge or a cliff or something like that. Yeah. And because of the speed I was scrolling down the page, it's just fully animated. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you're animating yeah. this scene for the, for the comic. And then yeah. when I learned that you were making a film out of it, I was like, that's so clever because you sort of, yeah. you're animating as yeah. you... I used the book as the storyboard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because the more, book functions almost, as the storyboard for the film. But almost like the keyframes as well, you know, like... Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, when you get Yeah, the keyframes totally. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Like, that doesn't always work, right? Right, okay. L- like, for example... And this is kind of exactly where I'm getting this from. 
if you look at a Jack Kirby comic from yeah. his best work, mm-hmm. which I can be totally p- specific about, yeah. Jack Kirby's best work is Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. issues 50 to 79. Okay. It's his best work. Yeah. Okay. Now you look at that stuff, right? And you see that Jack... <laughs> Check it out, man. It's awesome stuff. I believe, yeah, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm not that familiar with uh, that stuff, but... Well, okay. I need to get I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he takes the biggest step in between frames as you possibly can, mm-hmm. in between frames. Yeah. In terms of storytelling. Yeah. Except when there's some sequential action happening, mm-hmm. and then he'll break out into some sequential panels, mm-hmm. like Captain America, like going into some sort of martial arts combat with somebody. And it totally works. Mm. You know, like you're cutting out all the unnecessary information and you're focusing on the little bits of sequential information that make it look cool. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about kind of like raising that cool level as much as possible. Right. And moving the story forward as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, like a lot of people call him the master. Mm. But... You know, like, uh, I think uh, it's kind of good to look at that stuff. Yeah. yeah a I lot know. of people don't do that. No, I need to go back and... There's a lot of kind of old work that I need to go back and check out. How are you doing, um, for, how are you doing for time? Do you need to get out of here or are you... Uh, it's only 10.17. I think I'm good. How are you guys doing? Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fine. You want to keep fucking chit-chatting? Yeah, if yeah, you don't mind. Keep it going for yeah, a little yeah. longer. Okay. I, I, I mainly wanted to ask you about um, the about the film again, Pear Cider and Cigarettes, uh, and about this dude that it's about, Techno. Is he still around? Is he? Have you talked to him about making the film and stuff? Well, I'm not going to get into that. Okay. Because you should probably see the film. Okay. Yeah, I think it's. Um, uh, that's kind of integral to the to the sure. to the film, to the story and stuff. Was yeah. it a big decision to make it about a real person? That, was that something that you thought about much? Yeah, it was a weird thing to do to make a film about somebody you know. To spend like five years of your life, like really thinking about somebody else that you know. So I, I desperately wanted to figure out uh, a, a big story that I could tell. If you look at my earlier books, there's a lot of short stories. They don't have much substance to it. I'm trying to figure it out, you know. But uh, there's some elements through all of the stories that that kind of run through the Parasider story. The Parasider story is a little bit more... It's a, it's a bigger story in, in its scale. It's a kind of more serious story, but it has a lot of the elements that I kind of like to visit in, in my other stories as well. You know, there's pubic hair, there's <laughs> car accidents, there's a little bit of fucking, there's some drugs. Yeah. You know, there's good times and bad times. Yeah, yeah. These are all the things I kind of like, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh... <laughs> Sexy girls love being violent. You, I love that you started with pubic hair. <laughs> <laughs> These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> I know, okay, well... <laughs> But so, you know, that's my criteria, right? Yeah. So I decided, 
Um, well, I didn't decide. I kind of felt like Hugo's pushing me, hey? Yeah. And he's like, this is a great story. Mm. And I'm also feeling like I need a story. And so the two things kind of converged at one point. Mm. And I, I kind of came to the conclusion a little bit reluctantly that I, I thought it's weird for me to actually base a whole film and a whole undertaking, which is going to be a couple of years or whatever, on somebody that I know, somebody's life. But I knew techno. I, I, I thought techno was always telling stories about his life. He was always telling stories about himself. And he always kind of framed his, his predicament in terms of this incredible series of events that took place. And he, he told about it as if it was, I don't know, like he liked that. He liked to project himself in that way. Mm. I, I think that if he was around, the techno died. Right. But if he was around, I don't know if he'd like the film that I made. But I think he'd like the fact that there's something that exists that'll always be here mm. that's based on his life. I think that there's something that's, that he would really like. Yeah. Yeah. In, has, has, in, his family in, seen eh? has his family seen any of it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I gave their, them books, yeah. What's their response to it? Ah. Uh, Father's kind of not crazy about it, okay. but he's given me permission to go forward with it. You know, the mother passed away last year. She was a little bit more uh, kind of into it. The thing is, is I spent a whole lot of time in China with uh, techno, and there was a whole part of uh, our time there that went on for months. That was kind of, you know, all the kind of nuanced, a little bit of storytelling. Uh, about stuff that they weren't actually aware of that I thought that they might uh, enjoy seeing a window into. Mm-hmm. Like, regardless of them finding it um, unpleasant or kind of sad or whatever, like, this was, this was part of the story. Yeah. You know, I, I can't separate the story from, you know, like... F- you know, I, I, the fil- there's not much of a filter there. It, it just it, it is what it is. Yeah. And so if you're if if you're looking at the story, and you you know you're thinking, oh, I wish it was like this, or maybe I you know like Techno's father specifically was hoping there would be more Jesus in the story, and I I was just basically feeling like no, there's no Jesus in this story. This is specifically a story that's there's there's no Jesus in here at all. That's you projecting. Yeah. Your thing onto it mm-hmm. but the way I see it is the way I see it mm-hmm. you know and you might not like it but this is the way we grew up together yeah. you know this is this was our youth and this is the way things went and this is the way things went later and this is the way I remember it so at the end of the day you know I'm not the least bit ashamed of the way that I recall events, because it's yeah. just, it's the way that I remember it, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> like 
<laughs> I've had like an email from like Techno's girlfriend. Yeah. In high school. She wanted to see the book. Yeah. And I think I she's in that book. Yeah. Because I remember at one point Techno fucking cranked her underwear up and I could see her like bare ass almost. And I remember when that happened, it burnt an image in my head. Yeah. It just went, it sizzled. It went yeah. like that yeah. in my 12-year-old mind. Yeah. And it came out yeah. later on. She might look, look at that and go, what the fuck, man? Really? But that's the way it went. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the way I remember it. Yeah. So I don't feel bad about that. Yeah. And so that's kind of like my, the way I feel about this whole thing. I'm not sure how it's going to go down. Mm-hmm. I'm right on the verge of releasing this film. You know, it's, it's kind of been like a nothing, unexisting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But on Friday, I'm going to, uh, you know, view it to, you know, the people that I am most fond of mm-hmm. in the world, which are a lot of people in London. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you guys are going to be there. Yeah. And I don't have any control over the way that this is going to go down afterwards. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I can control is this one viewing where mm-hmm. we're all kind of together and we can all kind of just kind of have this one viewing. Yeah. And then, and then it's gone. It's released. Is so, it going straight out after that? Probably not straight out. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I imagine it's probably going to do like the festival circuit and stuff, right? Well, that's what I don't have any control over. Right. You know, I do have control over like the, the it's going to be on the Vimeo on demand. Oh, cool. So it's going to be viewable. Yeah. But in terms of its success or non-success, you know, I'm not focusing on that. No, that's completely I mean, nothing I, I want to think about. Okay. Right. Everything up until the point where that movie gets viewed on, on Friday, is that's actually in my control. Yeah. But everything after that, I'm, I'm just not going to worry about. Yeah. So that's it. That's great. I don't know if it's great. I think it is, man. <laughs> like, you've, you've, uh, you've put a lot of energy into something and you're hosting it in a really nice venue. And I think that you're being aware that, okay, this is my last opportunity to control it. And then it's Done. out there. Yeah. That is a good thing, man. Yeah. You know, because there, there was a few months ago where my brother came over and he watched the film with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And I, it was like an earlier sort of version of the film. And the two of them were chit-chatting all the way through the film. And I fucking, I was outside and I fucking lost it. <laughs> and I came inside and I hit the space bar and I stopped it. When the two of them stopped chit-chatting, they turned around and they noticed that it stopped. They're like, what's going on? <laughs> How long has it taken to figure it out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I said, look, if you're not going to fucking watch it, you know, if you're not going to pay attention, That's really rude. <laughs> then yeah. don't watch it. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, like, what the fuck is going on? Am I trying to control the way people's viewing experience is going to go? Like, it needs to be just go out there. Mm-hmm. And I think I need just to just let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen on Friday. I'm going to let it go. And then I'm going to move on after that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be done. I don't have any high hopes for it. I've never had any fucking festival luck in my life. I'm not expecting any now. Nothing like that. I don't care. But people are going to be able to get it on, on Vimeo On Demand. Oh, definitely. Pretty it'll soon. go out to the Kickstarter people first. Yeah. yeah. And then it'll be available, I think, in June after. We've submitted it to Annecy. We'll see if they accept it. Yeah. 
But the, again, these are things beyond my control. Yeah. I think it's good that... I think, the, I think for festival circuits, a lot of festivals don't like for it to be online. But I like this new model of you can, you can have it available to sort of purchase... Yeah. One, it's a good way of supporting the filmmaker, and two, yeah. it's a good way of having it available to someone who wants to watch it who doesn't have to go to a festival in France or LA or something to see it. You know, there's yeah. been a few things where I'm like, God, I've got to wait for it to not get nominated for an Oscar before I can they think about buying it online. You know? Yeah, we're not going to do that. That's great. Yeah. It's going to be available. That's really uh, good. But we're going to wait until after June. Yeah. So, but like I said, the Kickstarter supporters will get um, the first viewing on that. Yeah. That'll happen pretty soon. And um, have you got any... just want to speak a little bit about maybe like future projects you're doing. Yeah. Is there anything um, exciting in the pipes? I'm going to go back and uh, continue working with uh, Leica on that stuff. Great. i got tax time coming up. So if those guys are agreeable, I want to double down on that work and, you know, pay off my income taxes. And yeah. That'll get me through the next little wave. It's been a pretty, like, lean couple of years. Mm-hmm. So... You know, um, you know, I'd like to cash up a bit. Yeah. And uh, we'll see how the Vimeo thing goes. If if there's some passive income that comes through that, mm-hmm. you know, that would be good. Yeah. Then I could demonstrate to my wife and my son that this is actually like a profitable, not profitable, but a, a sustainable venture. Yeah. That's all I want to show. Yeah. It's just not just money out all the time. Yeah, yeah. That there's actually an audience. Mm-hmm. There's a paying audience. And there's real money that could be made from this and that you can build upon it. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, the, that would be really encouraging to me if that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure I'd, I'd be really, even just an experiment, it must be, like, I, I'd love to see, I don't like how profitable that kind of system is. Yeah, um, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Stick it up on iTunes as well. Yeah. Why not? Oh, uh, that we'll have to do with our distribution deal right, with right, Vimeo. Right. Yeah. Oh, so you have like a partnership with them at the moment? Well, it's a distribution deal. Ah, okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's all this stuff that Cars been working on that I'm I'm paying attention to, mm-hmm. but not that familiar with. Mm-hmm. And yeah. are they going to promote it in any way once it? Oh yeah, it'll like, get promoted. Oh, wicked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Vimeo are. They will, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. They'll oh, that's promote super it. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So all the Kickstarter momentum and everything, you know, afterwards, leading up to the release of the film, should, um, you know, help promote the film. Cool. Yeah. I just got one last quick question. Because, because of. All right, so there's obviously like a new Gorillaz album in the works. Are you at all involved in any of the future promos or have you had any of those kind of conversations with Jamie or anything? No. Oh, man. That means they're going to do it freely, aren't they? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie's coming to the screening on Saturday. I oh, really? So we'll see him there. Maybe that might open up some conversation. Yeah. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Oh, well, talk to him. Yeah, yeah. I gotta take a piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to take a piss yeah, so yeah. bad. Dude, Thank you so, so much, much for man. talking to us, yeah, man. It's been it's a real pleasure. I know we kept you yeah. for a little while here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cheers, man.
So thanks very much to Robert Valley for spending the time with us to record that episode. It was yeah, really thanks, Rob. It was really really fun, and um, thanks to Alex Widdison who's given us some really invaluable edit advice and notes. Thanks very much to Max Taylor who's done all the podcast notes and quite a lot of research for each episode. Uh, and extra special thanks to Box of Toys Audio who created our theme tune. Yeah, thanks very much, and uh, hope to see you next week. Take care.